The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, Philippians. Been a few weeks. In my notes it says last week, but clearly it wasn't last week. But you know, we've been looking. We just finished chapter 1 at the last time I was here. And Paul has laid out some amazing truths about Christ and how he's using each one of us in his beautiful plan. So when we come to chapter 2, he's saying these things almost in a redundant fashion. So we begin in Philippians 2 verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, So he's just outlined all these things. So what he's doing is stating the obvious. Okay, folks, these are very obvious. But if they're obviously true, then notice, complete my joy. Ah, now we're beginning to see our responsibility. Paul has laid it out. He's laid all blessings. He said, okay, now... Complete my joy. So in order for Paul to be completely full of joy, the Philippians have to step up and help complete his joy. And how do they do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full account and of one mind. Now that is critical for us to grasp this morning. The reality that you and I must be of the same mind. That means that God's people are absorbing God's word. They're surrendered to God's word. They're allowing God to work through them. And this is how we complete the joy Paul is talking about, by being one, being one. And in today, that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Today, it's kind of hard to be one with so many issues. Now, there's a truth which has uh, emerged in these verses. Uh, it began in the last four verses of chapter 1, and it moves into chapter 2. Paul speaks of a need for close relationships among believers. It's a matter of unity, and there are two reasons why it's necessary. The first is that it is necessary in time of war. Now, By this I mean, Christians are often besieged by the forces of this world. And they must draw together if they are to defend the gospel successfully and to advance the claims of Christ. The only way you and I work flawlessly in the gospel is if we do it as one unit. There is strength in numbers, and God works through a totality of people to accomplish his goals. Uh, This is what he was talking about in Philippians 1, verse 27, when he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We can't win on our own. We can't do it on our own. Yet, 
that's kind of what we try to do, isn't it? We come to church and we use church more as just a sounding board and a place to come together and visit and have a good time. But so often we're kicked aside by a need that we don't see. Uh, however, the dangers of warfare are at best only second in importance. I mean, think about it. What if the opposition should let up for a moment? What if the victories of the church cause us to relax? Everything is fine. We're a happy church. We don't see any issues. What if Satan should pull back on what he is doing and just give us the idea that victory is ours? Would we not relax and just simply enjoy life? Here's where we miss the key, and this is important. Are we to forget our mutual citizenship? Of course not. For we know that although unity is made necessary by the dangers we face, the real reason for Christian unity lies rather in our mutual relationship to Christ and of what we know of him. This is what's important. And this is what Paul has been teaching so far in chapter 1. Unity is the key. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul clearly shares that there are four solid legs that, that lay out how important unity is. One, because there is encouragement. Two, because there is a comfort from his love. Three, because there is a fellowship in the spirit. And four, because there is an experience of the tenderness and compassion of God. <clears throat> you know, I often hear people say sometimes, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's true. But think of all that's in church that develops the Christian. And this is what Paul is getting across, the absolute importance of church, that we don't, don't sacrifice what God is doing, building into us in numbers. Whether you're sitting in a Sunday school class before the service and, and being fed by solid teaching where you can interact and ask questions, and then you come in and worship by singing hymns and songs, and then you listen to the word. Then when you leave, what next? See, Paul is saying that all of this is very necessary for the personal development of the heart of each one of us. Because of these four things, you and I are to be, as the verse says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's because we are members of the same family and have learned from him that we must live in peace and unity with one another at all cost. Now, there's not a person here that can't come up with a reason of why we should put unity aside in certain situations, right? I mean, let's be honest. Let's really be honest at this point. 
I mean, we will always be tempted to divisiveness in ways that will injure our witness. But in situations, we must be strong to go to the Lord and overcome them. Let me give you a brief illustration. Some of you may have heard about this, but years ago, at one time, there was a new road being planned in Washington, D.C., which was to connect the northern border of Virginia to the northeast side of the city. It was to go underneath the city. When the engineers first began the project, they observed that it would be difficult because the ground level was so close to the water level in the tidal basin. They said, if you get down that low, surely you're going to flood, you're going to cause a lake. They said water will enter in and flood the site of the construction, and the result would be a lake midway between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. The actual construction, construction bore this to be true. Consequently, it was necessary to install extra thick walls in the tunnels and place pumps in operation that ran nonstop. And all of this to offset the pressure of the water. You see, all of us are in constant pressure of sin. All of us are under constant pressure of the world. We're all under pressure to pull us away. Yet, like building this road, we need to put things in place that will protect us. And we do that by coming together in unity. We do that by going before the Lord and learning together to be of one mind and of one spirit and of one heart. This is the key that helps us through. In the same way, they, the construction that we talked about works in our, in our hearts, as I've said. So if you found these things to be true, where God has worked in your life through his word to give you the strength, you understand what I'm talking about, the importance of doing that. So let's look at these four legs. The first reality to which Paul points to is encouragement encouragement in Christ. This encouragement in Christ is the support Jesus gave to his followers to live together in love. Jesus taught that the disciples were to covet the lowest place at the table, giving honor to the other person. He taught that love was to be their highest virtue. And so he said in John 17, verse 21, in his great prayer, Jesus said to the Father, he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, look at that again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you. Now just let that settle a minute. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's teaching that the Father is in him. And then he's saying that he is in the Father. That they, that you and I, may also be 
in them. Now, you're never going to grasp this unless you spend a lot of time meditating on it. But here's the reality that you and I have. The blessed oneness that Jesus and the Father have together, they're praying that you and I would have the same oneness so that we'd be just like this. You and I, being one with the Father and one with the Son, just like they're one with each other, that's never accomplished never accomplished unless you're together. Unless you're one with each other. Unless you're willing to overcome your shortcomings and your failures and the failures of others. But that's what he's praying for. Now, it gets even stronger. So that, all of this, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The blessed unity is the greatest testimony you and I will ever have. Our oneness with him tells the world that Jesus is real. So our need to be one in the spirit overpowers any rejection you may possibly have. You know, and we're always saying he must increase and I must decrease. What we see in that is that in my decreasing, it gives him more room to take over so that he can increase in the world and draw people to him. It's such a, an incredible blessing. You see, John is describing a visible unity here. For it's a unity that the world can see. And it's based on the people who have come to Christ. And when people can see that unity, they understand what real Christianity is. And they know that Jesus has to be real. I mean, think about what happens in certain situations where somebody wrongs someone else and everybody is like, write him off. But they get down and pray with him and love on him anyway and show the love of Christ. You recall back when we were going through the book of John, how many times we saw Jesus when he was wronged just turn and love on the people that wronged him. Why was Jesus showing that example? He was showing it so that the world would see he's real. And this is what he's called upon you and I to do. Can you accept the fact that this type of unity is what Jesus desires for you? The second reality of the Christian life bearing on unity is the incentive of love. Paul knew that Christians are hard to get along with. He knew we're messy. We're tough to get along with. But he also knew that Christians have a duty to see more than other Christians' faults. 
Christians must also see the person and they must love him or her with a love patterned after the love with which God the Father loves you. The person who really loves the other Christian in this way will not seek to separate from him. For sure, there may be many areas that need correcting, no doubt. But that only comes when you've developed a relationship out of love and compassion, where you've put that person's good above your own, where you're not standing there in judgment, but in forgiveness and mercy. As you seek to do this, always, always remember that your love is to be patterned on God's love. In fact, your love is actually to be an outpouring of his love through you as you are transformed by the indwelling presence of the Spirit. As you allow the Spirit to take over, what's really happening is God's Spirit coming out of you and loving them. And I'm telling you right now, nobody can resist God's love. So it's a get out of the way, surrender to him, and let his love come through you. That's the amazing passion that he talks about. In fact, Jesus taught this right before his crucifixion. And this always amazes me, this verse. In John 13, 34, he goes, A new commandment I give you. Wait a minute. I thought you came to fulfill all the commandments. I thought the commandments were over with. This is the age of grace, right? He says, a new commandment I give you. So this is a commandment. There's no getting around it. This is a commandment directly from God. That you love one another. It's not an option. Folks, love one another. It's not an option. And it's not an option because that's the way God works through his people. And if you don't love everyone as he's instructed you to love, you're getting in the way of his ministry. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Now, why? Well, first, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. All right. How did Christ love you? He loved you with a cross. He loved you with a cross. He loved you with a servant spirit. He loved you with his life. All through eternity, he loved you. And on that faithful day when he went to the cross, he sealed that love. And you and I have been given a commandment to love each other the very same way. That leaves no room for excuses. It leaves no room. The statement leaves no room for qualification. Your love for the other Christian must be like Christ's love for you. Now, does God cast away Christians who have offended him? Anyone who sins or, or makes mistakes? Of course not. His love 
reaches even farther the farther they go. And that same love must flow through you and I. And it must be our pattern. This must be how people know us. People must come to know you by the pattern of your love that you love. That you love them unconditionally and totally with a surrendered heart. The third thing Paul mentions as Christian fellowship, we saw this back when we were way back in the beginning looking at Philippians 1 verses 3 and 5. And it discovered that this is not merely a human fellowship, like the fellowship between friends who may have a, a number of things in common. It is not man-centered. The fellowship that exists between Christians is a fellowship created by God. It only exists because by grace we have been made whole. I can't survive without it. This dimension of the Christian fellowship is, is taught clearly in the opening verses of 1 John. After beginning this letter with an exalted confession of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, John goes on to speak of Christian fellowship. And he says in 1 John 1 verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this means that because you have been brought into a vertical relationship with God by grace, you have also been brought into a horizontal relationship with a person sitting next to you. That's how it works so clearly. In fact, you can't even claim one aspect of the fellowship unless you have the other. For John goes on to say, still speaking about fellowship in 1 John 1, 5 and 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the more you surrender and walk with him, the more you surrender and walk with the people sitting next to you. And the more we do that, the more impact this church makes, and it starts a role that can't be stopped. It starts a role that can't be stopped. Now, we're not after building churches, we're after surrendered hearts. And the more you and I surrender individually, the more it affects the entire church. The fourth element in Paul's appeal for unity is the Christian knowledge of God's mercy and compassion. Tenderness is a word that is used both of the human being and of God. But this is not true of the Greek word translated compassion or sympathy. This word always relates directly to God. It's the word that occurs in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. 
It occurs in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Also, James 5.11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, in light of these verses, it's clear that Paul is appealing to the believer's experience of mercy from God. This all comes from God first to you and I. So the sooner you and I get on our knees and get into the Word and start praying and allowing the Spirit to cultivate us, the sooner we're able to cultivate this in others. And that vertical relationship becomes horizontal. And so the flow of the Spirit comes down and over and up and down and over. And because we're one in the Spirit, because we're one in Christ, and we're one in the Father, and they're one in us, we are now one with everybody around us. And the power that builds is a surrendered body of people that build and grow into each other's lives. What an amazing story that's been laid out for you and I. What amazing power has been given to us to live. So how then can you fail to show compassion to those who also confess Christ's name? Even though they might have offended you or disgraced you in some way. Maybe the best way to put it is, have you unfriended anybody on Facebook lately? That's the silent trigger, isn't it? I'll get in with you. I wonder what's going on in there. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is wanting to build into us a powerful life that he can use. Are there rationalizations to all this? Well, let's look at our text again this morning. Philippians 2, 1 through 2. And let's look at it now, having read everything we've read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind that's Paul's desperate prayer for you and I you know Jesus also said in John 13 15 by this all people will know that you are my disciples how? if you have love one for another. You can say all you want in testimony, but unless people see in your life true love, you're just sounding brass and a clinging cymbal. Does Jesus have your heart this morning? Is he the author of your salvation? 
Is he calling you to the kind of life where together we can knit together and be used mightily of him instead of worrying about our own selves and our own desires and the own things we want? It doesn't matter what this life gives you or doesn't give you, what it holds back, what it makes you work for, or what you have to go through. Christ is working. He's working. And he's working through you this morning. Are you willing to let him work fully and completely in your life? As we go to prayer this morning and the men come to prepare for the offering, I want to ask you to just have a time of true surrender. Is there anybody in your life you need to speak to? Is there anybody in your life you need to confess? Is there anybody in your life you need to show more love and compassion, even though they may have wronged you? Would you lay them before the Lord right now and ask God to work? Would you ask him to deal with you so that you can be more open to the Spirit? And then allow God to just open your heart about communion, the joy of it, what it represents. Is Christ coming to die to, to just liberate us from all the junk? Let's pray, shall we?
and that you will bless this time of communion for your honor and glory. In Christ's precious name.
same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.